Welcome to First Church. My name's Chad. I'm applying for the preaching job around here. So I've been gone for a few weeks, and it is good to be back. I'm just kidding about applying for the job. I think I already have it, but I appreciate you guys allowing me to have a studied break. I want to thank the elders especially for that time. I was able during this uh, period to plan out, map out all of my sermons for 2023. So God has got some great things in, in store, and I'm excited about our future together. I also had a chance to plan some things for this fall and next year as well when it comes to activities and programs, and so I appreciate that headspace and that time that you gave me to be able to do that, and then we wrapped up my time away with a vacation as a family, and so I just want to thank you guys, thank our elders, and also thank all of our guest speakers. Didn't we have a great group of guest speakers the past few weeks? Yeah, give it up for them. Appreciate all those guys that filled in. Great lineup. And I'm excited to be back with you. I've been gone for a few weeks, so I've got a lot of sermons built up. I'm ready to go. i got a lot to say. So I need to go ahead and get started. But before I do, I want to take a quick moment to welcome in our online community. I just looked and I saw, before you clap, we have Tyler Bush in Germany, and he is watching with a bunch of his Air Force buddies. So let's welcome in him and all the rest of our online family as they join us for worship today. Well, while I was away, my son Alex celebrated his ninth birthday. It's hard for Allison and me to believe we have a nine-year-old, we're getting old, but he turned nine, and one thing that he wanted to do was to go see Dude Perfect Live at the BOK Center. Now, if you don't know who Dude Perfect is, they have this online channel, uh, this YouTube channel, and they do all these crazy stunts and tricks that are just unbelievable. Like, here are some of them, if you don't know what I'm talking about. They will make like crazy basketball shots, hitting the ball into the goal. I mean, that seems like it would hurt. But Or they'll make bowling uh, shots like this, strike, not even looking, not even looking at all. And it's one thing for one to do it, but how about two in a row? I mean, here you go. I mean, this is pretty impressive, honestly, when you think about it. And how about this guy? He's going to hit a glass bottle from hundreds of feet away, nails it. Here it is in slow motion if you want to look at it again. Bam, nails it right there. I mean, that's impressive, and they do even more crazy stuff than that. And so my son, he looks up to them. He wants to be like them. And so he's been trying his own Dude Perfect stunts. And the other day, Allison took him and his sister to one of our friend's pools, and he tried a stunt and take a look at how it went. Now, isn't that awesome? Yeah. Sign him up for Do Perfect. Maybe start his own YouTube channel, you know, make his parents some money. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But, you know, when I saw that video, because I wasn't with him, when I saw that video, I was like, buddy, that was great. He said, yeah, I did it multiple times. Mommy just caught it on video once. I was like, well, that's awesome. What's your secret? How'd you do it? And he said something that I thought was pretty profound for a nine-year-old, and it's this. This is what he said. You have to know where the goal is before you jump. 
And I thought that was pretty good. You got to know where the goal is before you jump. And that's not just good advice when it comes to hitting a trick shot. It's also good advice in life. It's good advice when it comes to following Jesus as well. Because as followers of Jesus, we are aiming for something. Jesus has given us a goal that he wants us to shoot for. Jesus has given us a greater purpose that he wants us to strive for. We're not a people who are just throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. There is a purpose that Jesus wants us to live out. See, that's why Paul writes these words. Paul says, so I run like someone who has a goal. He's speaking about his own life here. He says, in my journey, I run like someone who has a goal in front of me. I fight like a boxer who is hitting something, not just the air. I'm not just going through the motions. I do this so that I won't, I won't miss getting the prize myself after telling others about it. What is Paul saying? I don't want to waste my time just going through the motions. No, but I want to direct my life in such a way that I'm applying myself in order to achieve the goal that Jesus has set for me. I want to live out the purpose that God has for me. And so, like Paul, we don't want to be a people who waste our time but we want to aim for what really matters. Because here's a truth that I've discovered over time, and you may have discovered this as well. Activity that's aimless results in exhaustion. You ever been there? Where you're really, really active, you're really, really busy, you're doing a whole lot, but you just don't feel fulfilled. You don't feel satisfied. You don't feel like you're accomplishing anything. You're busy. And all it leads to is you being tired and exhausted and sometimes frustrated, and even depressed. You see, we can go through the motions of life and not really feel like that we are accomplishing anything. And what Paul here is saying and what the Bible is teaching us is that's not the life that God wants for us. He wants us to live with purpose. And that's true not just for our individual lives, it's also true for the church. God has a goal that he expects for his church to shoot for. And Jesus talks about that goal in Matthew chapter 28. You've probably read these words before. It's called the Great Commission. And Jesus says right before he ascends into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus says those words after the resurrection, after he defeated death, after he defeated the curse of sin on the cross and rose from the grave, Jesus says those words before he ascends into heaven. It's kind of a boss statement, you know? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm the one that holds the cosmos in my hands. All of creation answers to me. Life and death itself answers to me. I'm the one who's in charge. It's a boss statement. And then he says... I've got a job for you. As my followers, as my people, I have a job for you. My work isn't finished yet. Yes, I did pay the price of all of mankind's sin on the cross. That's been done, but there's still work to be done in order to change the world. And Jesus is telling us he wants to work in and through us in order to make disciples of all nations and change the world by introducing the world to him. 
Jesus has entrusted us with the greatest work in all the world. And what that means is we are not here to waste time or buy time or to pass time. We are here to redeem the world. Jesus has called you and me to be difference makers in the culture that we live in. But if we're not careful, we can lose sight of that mission. We can get distracted from the goal that Jesus has set before us. And that's why we're doing this series right now called We Are First Church. Because every now and then we need to hit pause and just reframe things and refocus and make sure that we are headed down the path that Jesus wants us to take. That we are aiming in the right direction as he wants us to aim. I made the mention that at the end of my study break, my family got to take a week of vacation, and we went to San Antonio, Texas. We'd never been to San Antonio before, and it was an awesome experience. We got to see the Alamo for the first time, which I loved. I'm a big history guy, so that was really cool. And we got to do the river walk and the boat ride and all that kind of stuff. My kids wanted to go to SeaWorld, so we went to SeaWorld San Antonio, and that was a whole bunch of fun. And we just loved our week in San Antonio. But one thing that I didn't like were the roads down there. Now, I don't know if you've been to San Antonio or not. I know other cities are like this, but the roads can be really, really confusing because they have multiple turning lanes. And they have some lanes that turn one way, but some lanes that are turning, but you go straight a little bit more and then turn. And then they've got other lanes that are just U-turn lanes only. And so I've never, I've never been to San Antonio. I'm following the GPS on my phone, you know, and it says, turn left. Well, which left? Because there's a whole bunch of left. So this is what I saw over and over again, rerouting, because I would always make the wrong turn. I mean, I was lost half the time when we were in San Antonio. And in fact, the very first night that we were there, we were trying to find our hotel, and I could see our hotel, but I couldn't get to it. You know what I'm saying? And I just kept going around in circles. I kept taking the wrong lane over and over again. And we probably drove past our hotel like five or six times. And there was this mall that was across from our hotel, and they had these gigantic cowboy boots out front, like a statue of cowboy boots. And my kids loved them, and I'm glad they did, because we passed by them, like I said, five or six times, just kept going around and around. And so I started to make a joke about it, and I was like, well, kids, I'm having deja vu. You know, I'm seeing something I think I've seen before. And so I started to joke, and about that time, Addie, my little girl, she turns to her big brother and says, what does deja vu mean? And her brother said, I think it means daddy's lost. And you know, he wasn't far off, honestly. I kind of was. I didn't know where to go. But sometimes in life, we need to be rerouted, don't we? Sometimes we need to be reminded that we've taken the wrong path, and we're headed somewhere where we don't want to go. It can happen to the best of us. It's happened to me, and I guarantee it's happened to you as well. And it can happen to churches as well. See, here at First Church right now, we have a lot of really awesome and cool things going on. I mean, and I say all this not to brag on ourselves, but to give God the credit, because God is the one who's doing the work. And here at First Church right now, our community of believers, it is the largest that it's ever been in our 115-year history. We have over 1,700 people a Sunday worshiping with us. I mean, that's just incredible. Not only that, our next-gen ministry is exploding right now. And you probably saw that last Sunday, didn't you? We've got some of our students down front here. We have an awesome next-gen ministry from the babies all the way up to our students. And, it, and our next-gen ministry is growing so fast, we have to build a new building in order to hold all the kids that we have. 
And so we launched a new initiative called Unstoppable. And we asked our church family to double our current operating budget so that we could pay for this new building. And you guys committed to doing that. And that is just incredible because we believe in the mission of Jesus. In fact, I was talking to somebody just the other day who's a part of our church. And they said, you know, with the economy with the economy being kind of shaky right now, our family has decided not to go out to eat anymore. We're going to eat at home all the time so that we can save some money in order to meet our unstoppable commitment. And when I hear stories like that, I'm just blown away because I know our church believes in the mission that God has given us. I mean, we see our online community expanding. We see our groups ministry expanding across the board. We are seeing unbelievable growth. We are able to support more and more local and global mission partners all the time. And every single week, we're seeing life change take place. We see people baptized into Christ. We see homes restored, marriages brought back together. God is doing some incredible stuff in this place, and we do give him all the glory for it. But if we're not careful, we can take our eyes off of his purpose for our church, and we can start to veer and take a detour that he never wanted us to take because we're growing right now during a period of time when a lot of churches are not growing. And I don't say that to cut down any other churches because I think we're on the same team as other churches who are preaching the gospel. But I say that because if we're not careful, we can get off track. We can lose sight of what God wants us to be doing. And sadly, it happens all the time because good intentions are not the same as being intentional. So you can have good intentions. I've never talked to a church leadership at another church where they have said, you know, we don't want to grow. We don't want to, you know, baptize anybody. We don't want to bring anybody to the faith. We don't want to restore marriages. We don't want to grow. We're just happy as we are. And, you know, if we shrink a little bit, that's okay. You know, we'll be the chosen frozen. I mean, we're fine. You know, I've never heard a church leadership say that. Everybody wants to grow. If you ask them, do you want to grow? Yeah, we want to grow. But good intentions are not the same as being intentional. I mean, if you say you want to spend more time with your family, but then you never actually like make that time, carve out that time, you're not intentional about it, then it's not going to happen. You can say you want to eat better, but if you continue to go through the drive-thru and order the double cheeseburger with extra bacon and large fries, you're probably not going to be any healthier. I mean, you can say that you want to cut back on your spending, but when the Amazon Prime guy stops by your house three or four times a day, you're probably not going to be saving any money, right? Good intentions are not the same as being intentional. And in order to live out God's purposes, it takes intentional alignment because living on mission doesn't happen by accident, but by intentionally aligning ourselves with God's purpose for our lives. That's why Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, don't act thoughtlessly, but try to find out and do whatever the Lord wants you to. See, we believe here at First Church that direction determines destination. If you want to end up where God wants you to end up, then you got to go where God wants you to go. You've got to direct your life in the direction of him where he wants to take you. And that's why a few years ago here at First Church, we adopted this little tool that we called our discipleship triangle. And it's something really simple that we can bump up against every now and then and make sure that we are staying on course, that we are aiming at the right target. 
And we call this our discipleship triangle because we believe this is what every single follower of Jesus needs to do in, in order to keep growing. We all, no matter what phase we're in, no matter if we've been a Christian for like five days or 50 years, no matter where we are right now in our spiritual journey, all of us need to be pursuing Jesus, growing together in community, and unleashing love, serving his mission. We're all called to do that. And this is going to look different depending on what spiritual state you're in right now. I mean, if you're a brand new follower of Jesus, your pursuit of Jesus is probably gonna look a little different than somebody who's been pursuing Jesus for 50 years. Or maybe if you're a teenager, growing together in community is gonna look different than somebody who's middle-aged. I get that. There's gonna be different moments in life when you're able to serve Jesus in different ways because of your life experience. I get it. It's gonna look different for everybody, but we all have the same goal. And we believe that by doing these three things, it leads to having a balanced spiritual life. That if we're all doing this together, that we all have these three goals in common, it will lead to a balanced and healthy spiritual life. But if you're missing any of these things, then your spiritual life is going to be unbalanced and you're going to end up going down a path that God doesn't want you to go down. So over the next few weeks in this series, we are First Church, we're going to be breaking down these three parts of our triangle. And today we're going to start with the foundation of our triangle, which is what we need to be doing first, and that is making sure that we are pursuing Jesus. See, we believe that every single person who calls himself a follower of Jesus, and we expect for every single person who is part of our First Church family to be relentlessly pursuing Jesus on a daily basis, a real transformational relationship with Jesus on a daily basis. And why do we use the word daily? Because Jesus used that word. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. What's that word? Say it with me. Daily and follow me. See, contrary to how some churches present the gospel, following Jesus is not a one-time decision. It's not just the moment when you come forward and you make your confession of faith, baptized in the Christ. It's not just that one moment. That is the start of you following Jesus. But following Jesus is a daily choice, a daily decision that we make. And so we expect here at First Church for us to be a church family that never, ever stops pursuing Jesus. Because when you stop pursuing Jesus, you become complacent in your own spiritual life. And when you become complacent, it leads to stagnation. Every now and then I will run into somebody, maybe somebody new to our church, or maybe just somebody who doesn't go to our church, it's on the street, whatever, in Walmart. I have a conversation, and when they find that I'm a preacher, or maybe they just started attending our church and they want to get to know me better, they'll start talking about their own faith. And they kind of come across, they don't say it like this, but they kind of come across like, They've got this whole Jesus thing figured out. Like, they've been in church for a long time, and so they know who Jesus is. They know what the Bible says. You know, they got this whole church thing, Jesus thing figured out. And anytime I meet somebody like that, I get a little worried about them. Because I don't care if you've been a Christian 50 years, you never stop pursuing Jesus. It's like in a marriage. If you want a healthy marriage, you have to continue to pursue your spouse. If you ever get to the point where you're not pursuing your spouse, it's going to lead to stagnation. And the end result is you may have two people living under the same roof, but who are strangers. And I've never had an extended period of time like that with my wife, but there have been moments with Allison that maybe we haven't been pursuing one another like we need to. And we realize, hey, we're just passing and we're not really connecting like we need to be. And it's always a healthier family, a healthier environment when 
husband and wife are pursuing one another intentionally, and the same is true when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. If we want a healthy relationship with Jesus, if we want to have a healthy church, we've got to be a people who are intentionally pursuing him. Because we believe that he is the head of this church. I'm not the head of this church. The elders aren't the head of this church. No staff members are the head of this church. I don't care if you've been here 50 years. You're not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of this church. And if we want to move forward as he wants us to move forward, we have to be pursuing him. We say he's Lord, but do we really live like it? Some time ago, I had the chance to eat at a restaurant, and I've been to this restaurant multiple times, and they always have great food. I love eating there. But this day, I got to eat there with the owner of the restaurant. We were meeting and talking about something, and it was interesting. When I got my salad, which is what I always order there, and they have a really, really good salad. When I got my salad that day, it was picture perfect. I mean, the meat, the chicken on the salad was cut up in just perfect little pieces. The lettuce was placed just right. Cheese and bacon, it was just all spread out perfectly. It looked like something you would see in the picture of the menu or on a commercial or something. It was almost too good to eat. I ate it anyway, but it looked almost too good to eat. It was great. And I thought, what's different? And then I realized I was sitting across from the man in charge. I was sitting across from the guy who owned the restaurant. And when you're setting with the one in charge, it makes a difference. And the same should be true for us in the church. If we really believe that Jesus is the head of the church, if we really believe that he is here, if we really believe that he is in the house today, it should make a difference because his presence should motivate everything that we do and everything that we say. And so let me ask this. And I, I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty or feel bad. I just say it to make us think. If somebody were observing you over the past 30 minutes, by your actions, by your deeds, could they tell that you believe Jesus is in the house? The way that you worshiped this morning, could they tell that Jesus is in the house? Did you really believe that? Right now as the sermon's going on, for those of you who are on your phone and you're not on your Bible app, but you're on social media, I know what you're doing. I'm gonna call you out. I haven't been here for a few weeks to preach, so I'm gonna preach today, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. What about when your conversations have in the hallway? What about when you start complaining about something that eternally doesn't matter, but it's just your preference? What about when we came to the offering time? Like I said, I'm gonna preach today, okay? If somebody was watching you, could they tell that you really believe that Jesus is in the house and you're here for him, that you believe he is Lord of lords and King of kings? Because sometimes I'm afraid that we're under the same roof as Jesus but we're just two strangers under the same roof. And that's not the type of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. And that's why Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know why he says that? Because changing the world is a tough job. He never said it's gonna be easy. Making disciples of all nations is a tough job. And the only people who are going to be able to do what Jesus is calling us to do are those who see him clearly. 
those who are doing life with him. Because here's the thing, making disciples of all nations will not happen if we're trying to do it on our own. Changing the world by infiltrating the darkness with the light will not happen if we're trying to do it on our own. We will never be able to change culture. We will never be able to change our communities. We will never be able to change our families if we try to do it on our own. But Jesus has promised to always be with us to the very end of the age. And when we see him clearly and we were following him, he will turn the world around us upside down. So, do you see him clearly today? Because I believe that nothing, nothing is needed more in the church today than for us to see Jesus clearly. See, what the church needs today in order to change culture isn't a better website or a new program or activity or even a different style of worship for that matter. What the church in our culture today needs more than anything is to have a fresh, renewed, clear picture of Jesus. And that's what we see happening. In the very last book of our Bible, we call it the book of Revelation. See, the book of Revelation was written during a period of time when Christians were really suffering. The culture was against them. The Roman Empire was against them. Christians were losing their jobs, their homes, their lives simply because of their faith in Jesus. All of the apostles, the 12 original disciples, had been killed because of their faith, except one, John. John is the last apostle living, and he's like 90 years old. I mean, he's an old man at this point, and he's been exiled to an island prison called Patmos, kind of the Alcatraz of their day. And as he is exiled, suffering for the sake of the gospel, he is worried, he is concerned, because he knows how it looks. It looks as if that evil is winning. It looks as if that Satan is getting the best of God's church. It looks as if the Roman Empire is greater than the kingdom of God. That's how it looks. And how it looks is affecting the churches. You see, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus tells John to write some things specifically to some churches that existed during his time. And look at what Jesus says about some of these churches the church that met in the city of Ephesus, their love for Jesus had grown stale. The church at Pergamum, they had accepted lies as truth. They had traded lies for truth. The church at Thyatira, they were practicing idol worship. The church at Sardis was going through the motions. In fact, Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're really dead. And the church at Laodicea, they were lukewarm, spiritually speaking. How does this happen? Because here's the thing, Jesus, when he addresses these churches, never says that any of these churches have out and out rejected him. None of them have fully turned against him. None of them have disowned him. None of them have rejected him. How do you get to this spot? Not by rejecting him, but by reducing him. To where Jesus is still a nice spiritual therapist to have around to help you get to where you want to go. But he's not really the Lord of your life, the king over your life. And so what ends up happening is you pull Jesus out when you need him, but you're not letting him direct you and guide you. It's not that Jesus doesn't have a place in your life. It's just that he doesn't have first place anymore. And here's the thing, if Satan can't get us to reject Jesus, he'll settle for us reducing Jesus. Because he knows that when we reduce Jesus, when we dethrone him, where we keep him around, but he's not on the throne of our lives anymore, 
That's when he can come in and do his greatest work in our lives. Satan knows a diminished view of Jesus leads to a diminished life. A diminished view of Jesus leads to a diminished church. And I'm afraid that as we read that list from Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, all those churches that had kind of fallen out of love with Jesus or were distracted, doesn't that sometimes describe the church in our culture today? I mean, we've become experts in making the church all about us, our needs, our wants, our desires. And if somebody doesn't get what they want, then they leave and they go to the church down the street who will give them what they want. We've made the church all about us. And what we need is not for Jesus to show up and make it all about us. What we need to do is show up and make it all about Jesus. Because when he is exalted, that's when Satan flees. See, we need to make sure that we are a place that everyone knows Jesus is Lord over. He's king over. Because when we dethrone him, when we reduce him, two things happen. There's two crises that we face. The first is the crisis of complacency. We get so familiar with Jesus that it's just routine. And we forget that the one who is with us is the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things, the one who holds the cosmos in his hands. The other crisis is the crisis of compromise. Because of our own fear and intimidation from the world, we start to look like the world and we reflect the world more than we reflect Jesus. And the whole point of the book of Revelation is no matter how bad things may look, it may look like Satan's doing his thing and it may look like that the Roman Empire is powerful, but no matter how bad things may look, Jesus wants John's generation and every generation to know he is still Lord. And my question today is, do you really believe that? Because this church does. And we unapologetically preach that Jesus is Lord over all. Not that he will be Lord someday or one day, but that Jesus is Lord this day, today. And because he is Lord, we have hope. Because we know. Yeah, you can clap for that. Because we know he is victorious in the end. See, guys, I'm not worried about the future of the church. A lot of people are like panicking right now because of how things are going in our culture. I'm not worried about the future of the church. You know why? Because I know who owns the church. And as long as Jesus owns the church, the church always has a future. My confidence is not in my abilities or my plans or my agendas. My confidence is in the fact that Christ is Lord. And so whenever things start to get rough, review the resume of Jesus. Because when you realize he's the one that owns the church, he's the one that's the head of the church, he's the one that is living in you, you have nothing to fear. And no matter what bumps and scrapes you experience, we know how the story ends. You see, what we need to do when things get rough is review the resume of Jesus, and that's what Jesus does for John in the book of Revelation. John tells us why he's on the island of Patmos, why he's been exiled like a prisoner. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Christ Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Why is he on this Alcatraz of his day? Why is he with all these other criminals? Simply because he was telling people about Jesus. And as he's been imprisoned and he's worried about all of his brothers and sisters, his fellow Christians across the world, who are suffering as well, I want you to notice what John does as Sunday rolls around. John says in verse 10 of Revelation 1, on the Lord's day on Sunday, 
I was in the spirit. What was John doing? As a prisoner, John was worshiping. Even in the midst of his pain, even in the midst of his questions, even in the midst of his suffering, John is worshiping. Why? Because sometimes when you feel like worshiping the least is when you need it the most. You need to be reminded of who Jesus really is. And so as John is worshiping, look at what happens. He goes on to say, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And we find out who that loud voice is. It's Jesus. And John turns around to see this voice that is speaking to him. And I want to break down what he sees when he looks at Jesus. Starting at verse 12, John writes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So he tells us, it's a son of man. It's a son of God. It's Jesus. And I want you to notice what Jesus is doing when John first turns around to see him. Jesus is walking among the lampstands. The book of Revelation tells us the lampstands represent the churches that John is writing to. So get this. John is suffering. He's confused. He's got questions. And he turns around. And what does he say? see he sees Jesus walking among the church he sees Jesus in the midst of his people Jesus in the midst of his church the church is not alone Jesus is not an absentee landlord he doesn't live in a galaxy far far away where is Jesus he is right with his people and then John goes on to say, dressed in a robe. Jesus was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. These are the vestments of a high priest and a king all at the same time. The itinerant preacher of Galilee has put away his filthy rags and now he has taken his place as sovereign over the entire universe. He is the high priest of God's people. He is the king over all kings. And then it goes on to say, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Don't see this as a sign of aging or frailty. This is a sign of wisdom and purity. John goes on to say that not only was his hair white as snow, but his eyes were like blazing fire. Jesus' eyes are piercing. They see everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees you where you are. He sees in you and through you. He sees all And then it says that his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. In other words, he is stable. He is unmovable. His foundation is strong. Nothing will be able to topple him over. Nothing will be able to knock him down. He will stand forever. And then it says that his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This Jesus speaks in Niagara thunder. When he speaks, it's like rushing waters. The world sets up and listens when this Jesus speaks. And then it says in his right hand, he held seven stars. The seven stars represent the messengers of the churches, meaning he is holding up in his right hand those who preach his word. And then he says, and out of his mouth, came a sharp, double-edged sword. (laughs) The Dr. Phil type Jesus that we learned about on flannel graph in Sunday school, that's not him right now. (laughs) This Jesus speaks and his very words devour his enemies. And then it says his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This Jesus blazes with supernova Brilliance. He's like looking at the sun. And then John says, when I saw him, this cosmic Jesus, I fell at his feet 
as though dead. And we understand why. Because in the presence of this Jesus, you can't stand idly by. This is the Jesus who does hold the cosmos in his hands. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the one who spoke everything into existence. This is the one who defeated death, who now holds the keys of death and Hades. This is the one who is eternally victorious. And in the presence of Jesus, John eats pavement. He hits the ground because you can't stand idly by in the presence of this Jesus. John, honestly, is scared to death. And look at what Jesus does next. It says, then, John says, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do you know what happens here? John is scared to death. And Jesus reaches down and touches him on the shoulder. And he says, Get up, John. You have nothing to be afraid of. It's me. It's Jesus. You know me. And yeah, right now, I know I look intimidating. Yeah, right now, I know I'm holding the cosmos in my hands. And I know I'm blazing like the sun. And I speak in Niagara Thunder. I get it. I know I look intimidating right now. But guess what? I'm on your side. You have nothing to be afraid of. Because in the presence of that Jesus, our earthly fears assume their proper size. In the presence of that Jesus, Rome doesn't look so big anymore. Evil doesn't look victorious anymore. In the presence of that Jesus, Satan flees. And John gets up and he worships that Jesus. You see, wherever Jesus is exalted, Satan is expelled. I made the comment that my kids wanted to go to SeaWorld when we were in San Antonio and we were there for like a half a day, and I realized something. SeaWorld, when I was growing up, because I went when I was a kid, it was like all about the animals. And this time, it was like all about the rides. Like, they've got legit roller coasters and rides that are pretty cool. And Addie, my little girl, five years old, she didn't want to ride any of those rides. She was scared. Even little kitty rides, she didn't want to do it. She was scared. So we went like half the day, and she didn't ride any rides. And we kept on talking her into it, and she would get right up to the line, and then she'd back out, and one of us had to wait with her, you know. And it was kind of disappointing because we wanted her to enjoy the day. And finally, I talked her into riding a little kitty roller coaster. It wasn't anything that dangerous or scary, but I talked her into it. And she was hesitant, but she got on and I told her, I said, listen, I will sit right beside you the entire time. You can hang on to daddy. And she said, okay. And here's a picture of us on this roller coaster. You can look at her arm there. She is hanging on to me, but look at that smile on her face. She ended up really enjoying it. And then we got done. And when we got done, I looked at her and I said, so what'd you think? And she looked at me and she goes, can we ride it again? It was such a change because she was scared to death to get on it. But by the end of the roller coaster, she was ready to do it again. Why? What changed? She knew the outcome. She knew the end of the story. She had been through it. She knew the end of the ride. And when you know how the ride ends, then you're willing to get on it in the first place. And that's the thing. Jesus came and defeated death for us. He went to the grave for us so that he could go before us. And he has come back to tell us, I have defeated death. 
And I have provided a way for you to walk through the grave into eternal life. And if you follow me and if you listen to me, then you may experience some bumps and you may experience some bruises and you may have some sharp curves and dips and even go upside down on the roller coaster of life. But you know how the story ends and in the end, you will be victorious with me. And that's the hope. That's the hope that we have in him. See, it's interesting that when people study the book of Revelation, they, they want to argue about it for some reason. And I always find that interesting because a book that's supposed to give us hope and encouragement, people argue about. And so people argue about the different views. And you've probably heard some of them, you know, like people say, are you premillennial? Are you postmillennial? Are you all millennial? But honestly, I think the biggest or the most accepted view of Revelation in the church today, unfortunately, is the pessimillennial view. The church sometimes can be really negative, pessimistic. Pessimillennial. And we're looking at our world and we're just throwing our hands up like, what's gonna happen? What's, we just don't know what to do and we're in this panic and we're always worried and we're always concerned and we're always anxious. Guys, we know the end of the story. We know what happens at the end of the ride. And so because of that, we can tolerate whatever it is we have to go through to get there because we know the one who is sitting beside us. And we know, we know that in the end, we will be part of his eternal kingdom. Because here's the thing, the book of Revelation is not primarily about the end of the world. It's about the end of the kingdoms of this world because one day all the kingdoms of men will fall, but the kingdom of God will last forever. And we now get to be part of his kingdom. So as a church, that's why we exalt Jesus. Because we have a choice to make. What kingdom are you gonna be part of? I don't know about you, but I wanna be part of the kingdom that lasts forever, the kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day and this time we've had to open up your word and study it. And I just pray, Father, that we will be those who continue to exalt your son because we know what the church needs today in order to change this culture is not a new program or a new website or a new style of worship or anything like that. What we primarily need is a fresh, renewed picture of your son. And we know that when we see him clearly, he will lead us where we need to go. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.